<laughs> appreciate that. All right. You guys always clap for me. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. It's so polite that you do that. Hey, uh, I want to welcome you uh, this morning to a very hot Sunday. How many of you are excited that it's hot? Summer is here, right? All the cold has kind of gone away. In light of that, and I think it's going to be about 87 degrees today. Uh, that's the high. In light of that, I want you guys to discuss. I didn't put it up. I'm sorry. I forgot to do this. But I want you to discuss maybe in, in groups. That's kind of the heart of Renew that we are able to share with one another. Uh, share what is the hottest, I mean hottest, trial or difficulty that you have faced this year, okay? What is that fiery furnace that you had to face this year, and what did you learn from it, okay? So what is that one big difficulty, trial, tribulation? What is that hottest thing that you had to face this year, okay? Or maybe you're still facing it, and what have you learned from it, or what are you learning from it? Let's take a couple minutes or a few minutes, and let's talk about that right now. Can we do that? All right, great. All right, if we can go ahead and uh, turn our attention back to, to me. <laughs> Thank you very much. And if we could take our Bibles, turn to 1 Samuel chapter 18. We're going to be looking at two chapters today. That's going to be a little difficult, of course, to be able to exposit two chapters. But what I'm going to do is I'm going to pick my spots, okay? And we're going to look at, uh, and if we could put the, the title of the message up really quick. The truth about valleys, okay? The truth about valleys. 1 Samuel chapter 18. You know, there's a pattern of thought that has permeated our Christianity today, and it says, if you find yourself unsuccessful at your job, or if your business is failing and, going, and you're going bankrupt, if you're having financial trouble, then receive Jesus as your personal savior, and your career problems will disappear, Become a Christian, and he will miraculously save you from bankruptcy. Or maybe your physical health is failing. Maybe your emotional life is unsatisfied. Then trust in Jesus for your salvation, and he'll turn everything around. And you'll find yourself super healthy and supremely happy. Or if you find yourself in desperate need, maybe in poverty, then all you have to do is respond to Jesus Call upon the name of the Lord, and he will miraculously give you everything that you've ever dreamed of by way of riches and material success. And so Christianity has bought into this materialistic philosophy that teaches that if we become Christians, then all of our problems should disappear. That everything in the Christian life should be met with success. Our relationships, our riches, our rights, our health, our healing, our happiness— but does a person come to Christ for wealth? Should it be because of materialistic success that we receive Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior? When you think about it, this idea is not Christian at all, but it's really pagan. The reason why the pagans worshipped their gods was to receive things from them, blessing and riches, and not to get stomped on or destroyed. The purpose was to appease their gods. The goal was to manipulate the gods to grant their desires. And so when we treat salvation as a divine quid pro quo, 
We fall into that same pagan understanding of God. Salvation is not about material success transforming our situation to meet our desires. Salvation is really about securing a relationship with Jesus whereby he transforms our very existence to his divine will. But what has happened is because we have the wrong idea, when trials or hardships arise, we can't move forward by faith, confidently believing despite trials because we have trusted in a pseudo-Christian notion that once I'm saved, I shouldn't have trials. That because I know Jesus, everything should be smooth sailing. Everything should really go my way. But the more you grow in your relationship with Jesus Christ, you learn that he sends us into the storms, that he pushes us into the valleys. And in our study of the life of David, we want to realize this truth this morning, that a man who is after God's own heart, that one who is truly beloved of God, that a person who has been anointed as king can and will encounter suffering, that a regenerate child of God can find themselves in a valley. And so we're going to look at David in the valley of suffering this morning. Now, what is a valley? If we could put that up. Well, Webster's Dictionary defines valleys geographically as a low stretch or as a stretch of low land between mountains, an elongated depression between mountains, okay? But emotionally, a valley can be any place or period or situation that is filled with fear and disillusionment and despair. It can be a depression emotionally. Those feelings we have between the mountaintops of success in our lives, where we're at an emotional low. Also, physically, a valley can be when we have expended all of our energy and we are fatigued, we're vulnerable, we feel inadequate and insecure in our lives. What is a valley? And it's this. It is the lowest point. Geographically, it's the lowest point. Emotionally, it's the lowest point. Physically, it's the lowest point. And theologically, it is the lowest point. And I want you to see that here in the life of David, we see a valley, a low point, one that has been sovereignly ordained by God and an opportunity for God to prove who he is at a time when David was at his lowest, when David felt the most inadequate. And in 1 Samuel chapter 18 and 19, we want to study just two truths about valleys that I believe will be a help to us. Two truths and we'll be done. Number one, if you're taking notes, write this down. It is in the valleys that fighting is the fiercest. You know, historically, if you're a historian, you know that many of the fiercest battles were waged in the valleys. Military experts will tell you that a valley is a perfect place for a battle. And I want you to see this metaphorically in the life of David. Let's look in verse 6. When the men were returning home after David had killed the Philistine, we know from last week he killed Goliath, the women came out from all the towns of Israel to meet King Saul with singing and dancing, with joyful songs and with timbrels and lyres. Uh, verse 7. And as they danced, they sang, Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. Now I want you to picture this. Saul and David are returning home from battle. He has pulled off the most miraculous thing. 
He's killed the champion of Gath. He's killed Goliath the Philistine. And because of that, the Israelite forces rout and destroy the Philistine army. So Saul and all of Israel are rejoicing at this amazing victory. Their spirits couldn't be any higher. And so when the news reaches the Israelite towns, the women from those towns come out in a victory procession. They're singing and dancing. And you know what they sing? Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. That's a beautiful, jubilant song. It's not true because David has just killed one Philistine, Goliath. But to the nation of Israel, they feel like, wow, David has done a miraculous thing. And so they sing this beautiful song. It's very innocent. But all of a sudden, this innocent song hits Saul the wrong way. Saul takes this song the wrong way. And in verse 8, the Bible says Saul was very angry. The term in Hebrew is very picturesque. It's the word karah, and it means to slowly burn from within. That Saul began to stew in his anger. And verse 8 says this refrain displeased him. The word displeased has the idea of it made him turn in his stomach. So it's very picturesque, all the fear, all the worry, all the insecurity that lay deeply dormant in his soul began to awaken, began to stew and churn and turn inside this man. And this is what he says in verse 8. They have credited David with tens of thousands, he thought, but with me only thousands? What more can he get but the kingdom? Can you see this paranoia awaken in Saul? In verse 9, and from that time on, Saul kept a close eye on David. This innocent song stirs up Saul's insecurity that this hero could usurp me as king, that this giant killer could become a king killer if I allow him. And so in verse 10, the next day, an evil spirit from, from God came forcefully on Saul. He was prophesying in his house, and while David was playing the lyre as he usually did, Saul had a spear in his hand, and he hurled it, saying to himself, I'll pin David to the wall. But David eluded him twice. Now, this begs the question as we read this, how long does it take for Saul to go from, number one, loving and celebrating David, to number two, being jealous and envious of David, to number three, throwing a spear trying to pin him to the wall? How long does it take for a person to love and celebrate David and then next minute try to kill David? The answer is 24 hours. Look in verse 10. It says the next day. That illustrates the ferocity of a valley is that it can become, that it can come suddenly and unexpectedly without warning. And isn't it true in our own lives as well? Suddenly, unexpectedly, without warning, we can find ourselves in a valley. We could be the perfect picture of health and the next day get a report that we have stage three colon cancer. Unexpected. We can be moving along and advancing in our career, and then all of a sudden, we can be fired because our boss doesn't like us, or because he's been planning and plotting, and we didn't know anything about it. We can have a relationship with somebody, and we think that everything's going well, and then all of a sudden, that person turns on us and begins to speak uh, ill of us, begins to slander us. See, I'm sure that David thought that his toughest battles would be against the Philistines. And he never imagined that his fiercest enemy would be his own king. 
See, David had to deal with a political war where he couldn't even trust the person that he was fighting for. Listen, why does God place us in sudden, unexpected valleys that take us without warning? Because it is in the valleys that we find out what we're truly made of. Valleys are crucibles. They're character checks in our lives. Because it's in the valleys that we're tempted to sin. We're tempted to lie and to steal and to slander so that we can escape the fierceness of the valley. And let me say this, every sin a Christian could commit is intensified in a valley. When I'm on the mountaintop and everything's going my way, I'm the greatest guy in the world. Everybody loves me and I love everybody. But when we're in the valley is when our true colors show. When the things that we have suppressed in our lives begin to come up. It's in the valleys that we're tested. You know, um, I don't know if I've ever shared this with you. I think I have personally, but never up in the pulpit, is I actually started a church uh, around the same time that Renew Church uh, was formed. And so Wilson and I, we kind of started around the same time. I started about a month earlier. And I remember that first year, oh my goodness, I was so, I was a joy to be around. I had so much faith. I had so much enthusiasm for the Lord. My journals were beautiful. I used to write the most amazing journals, right? The entries, I even like was stunned at some of the spiritual insights and some of the things that I was writing, right? And I just felt so good about our church plans. And I remember I would even go into the showers every morning. I would sing. I would be in there for like 25 minutes, okay? And you're not supposed to be in there that long, right? Because water and everything and, and the price of it. But I used to be in there and I used to sing praise songs to the top of my lungs. I mean, I was so satisfied in my spirituality. And I remember thinking to myself, you know, many years from now, when this church really takes off and is successful, I might even publish, I'm, I'm embarrassed to say this, but I might even publish uh, these uh, journal entries that I'd written because they might be a help to somebody. I, that's what I thought, okay? But you know what happened? After that first year, the second and the th God started to really place me in valleys. And I remember being at the lowest point thinking to myself, as I looked at my journals, I got sick of looking at it because that's not where I was. And I started to look at it and I said, who is this person that wrote this, right? I couldn't sing in the showers. I couldn't sing praise songs to the Lord. I was just stewing in all kinds of uh, uh, problems and so, so many things that actually revealed character in my life. Hey, listen, was, was, was I a different person when I wrote those things? No. I mean, honestly, I was that same person. I had that exuberance. But you know what I found later on as I look back on what had happened in my life? My maturity, right, or my faith didn't match my maturity. I started to realize in my life, wow, as I'm tested, you know, I have a long way to go. There are things that I uh, failed and I've, I've, I've not done right in my Christian life. And you see, that's what a valley does. It's in the valleys that you see your true character. You see what you're truly made of and how you respond to those unscheduled, unexpected valleys that are in your life. Well, how does David respond? And again, I'm going to pick my spots here. But in uh, chapter 18 and verse 30, look at it. The Philistine commanders continued to go out to battle. And as often as they did, David met with more success than the rest of Saul's officers. And his name became well known. 
Here we see that David, from the time that he defeats Goliath, he continues to have victory over the Philistines. And King Saul has no servant in his entire kingdom as loyal and as dedicated and as trustworthy as David. And so let's see how Saul responds in chapter 19, verse 1. And Saul told his son Jonathan and all the attendants to kill David. Is that shocking to you? He's so successful. He's so loyal. He's such a good guy. Why in the world would Saul want to kill him? I want you to notice two things. If you're taking notes, I want you to see this. Number one, I want you to notice the destructiveness of sin. Isn't it interesting how sin distorts a person's thinking? The greatest servant that Saul has, yet he wants to murder him. You know what's happening? Saul is threatened by David's success. And this sin issue goes way back before David. If we had time, I'd love to dissect this uh, in Saul's life. I don't have the time, but let me just suffice it to say, Saul has not repented of this sin. And so he hasn't gotten right with God. And so this insecurity that he harbors begins to fester into his life. And let me say this, when you allow sin to stay unrepentant, it will delude your decisions. It will distort your thinking and eventually it'll destroy your life. Saul knows David's goodness, yet he still wants to kill him. He's double-minded. We see from scripture that Saul, you know, uh, doesn't want to do this, but yet something compels him to want to destroy David. You see, sin leaves a person double-minded. You know, Wilson brought up a great point, you know, of how men and women, but men specifically deal with pornography. And when you allow it, when you say it's okay in your life and you allow it, it is going to distort and delude your thinking about women, about the physical nature of love, and you're going to live a double life. You're going to live double-minded. And so that's why it's so important to take care of sin. Notice the destructiveness of sin. And then I want you to notice, number two, the sovereignty of God. Why does Saul try to kill David? Let's look in verse 9. But an evil spirit from the Lord came on Saul as he was sitting in his house with his spear in his hand. And while David was playing his lyre, verse 10, Saul tried to pit him to the wall with his spear, but David eluded him. If you look in chapter 18 and verse 10, it's the exact same thing. But I want you to notice that the Bible says that the evil spirit was from the Lord. Here we see that this was from the Lord. Now we know, and I don't have time to theologically parse the idea that God, that God is not the author of evil. We know that he's not. But just because he's not the author of evil doesn't mean that he doesn't allow evil, right? Here we see that this was from the Lord. Saul, by his own free will, attempts to murder David. His sinful demons, his unrepentant heart, throws this spear intending to destroy David, but God sovereignly allows David's suffering in his life. God superintends the valley that he is in. And by the way, David, from this point on, spends 13 years running from Saul. From his late teens throughout his 20s, Saul is seeking to destroy him. He's a fugitive. He's living in caves. He's eluding capture. He goes to foreign countries. And he doesn't move on from the valley until he is 30 plus years of age. Think about that that God sovereignly places him for 13 years in a valley. Now, you might ask, why? Why do we go through these valleys? And let me say this. 
It is because God is not just the God of blessings. God is also the God of suffering. You might say, what did you just say, right? Are you saying that God is the God of suffering? Are you saying that we serve a cruel God? Listen to me. I serve a cruel God if there is no purpose to my suffering. But the Bible says that there is a purpose. And here we see that David the anointed, the beloved, the child of God, is going through the valley of suffering for a purpose. This must be a great encouragement to us. That God sovereignly allows valleys in our lives for a purpose. That we can go through that suffering knowing that God is in control of that suffering in our lives. That God orchestrates this for a reason. Now, you might ask, well, what is the reason for our valleys? Well, this brings us to our second truth about valleys. Can we look at it? It is in the valleys where we always look up. Isn't that true? Stop and think about that. If the valley is the lowest point, then there's nowhere else to look but up. Can I get an amen? Right? Psalm 121 and verse 1 says, I lift my eyes up to the hills. Where does my help come from? Right? The psalmist is saying, I'm in a valley. There's nowhere else to look but up. Where does it come from? My help comes from the Lord. You see, valleys make us predisposed to look up. Valleys make it so that all we want to do is to look up. So we'll look to the Lord Jesus. We'll look up to our salvation. Why does God place me in a valley? Because when you're on the mountaintops of success, you don't naturally look up. You look around. You look at others. You look at your career. You look at your wealth. You may even look at yourself. But when we're in a valley, our natural inclination is to look up because there's nowhere else to look but up. Let's look in verse 10. But Saul tried to pin him to the wall with his spear. But David eluded him as Saul drove the spear into the wall. And that night, David made good his escape. Verse 11. And Saul sent men to David's house to watch it and to kill him in the morning. Imagine this. David must have been so confused, so discouraged. He must have been so disillusioned thinking, what have I done to deserve this? I've always been good to King Saul. I've always been loyal and trustworthy. I've served him faithfully. Why am I getting spears thrown at me? Right? And it's in, at this point in the storyline that David writes one of his most famous psalms. And that's Psalms chapter 59, okay? Psalms chapter 59. And if you, can, if you want to turn there, you can turn there. If you want to listen, just listen. This is a profound truth that David learns at this particular time in his life. Psalm 59 verse 1 says, Deliver me from my enemies, O God. Be my, and I want you to catch this word, fortress against those who are attacking me. Verse 2, deliver me from evildoers and save me from those who are after my blood. Verse 3, see how they lie in wait for me. Fierce men conspire against me for no reason or sin of mine. Verse 4, I have done no wrong, yet they're ready to attack me. Arise to help me, O Lord. Verse 9, drop down. You are my strength, I watch for you. You, O God, are my, and here's the word, fortress on whom I can rely. Verse 16, but I sing of your strength in the morning. I will sing of your love for you are my fortress in times of trouble. Verse 17, you are my strength. I sing praise to you. You, O oh God, are my fortress, my God in whom I can rely. You see, David learns that the number one reason for valleys 
is because they are reminders that in our desperation, we're always supposed to look up. We're always to look to Jesus Christ and to trust him as our fortress. What is a fortress? What is it? It is that thing in our lives which we find refuge in, where we trust and we rely on and we're encouraged by. It's that thing in our lives that we lean on as security, that we find our strength from that fortress. And there's nothing wrong with a fortress in and of itself, but you know, it can become substitutes for the Lord Jesus if Jesus is not our fortress. It's in the valleys that God proves himself to be the only fortress that we can truly find our refuge in. And I want you to notice that God takes away every one of David's fortresses. He first of all takes away the fortress of a companion. Would you put that down? Or would you get to that? Companion. His companion was Michal, his wife. And a companion is who you care about with all your heart. Let's look in chapter 19, verse 11. Look at it. But Michal, David's wife, warned him, if you don't run for your life tonight, tomorrow you'll be killed. So Michal let David down through a window, and he fled and escaped. And let me share this. From here on out, David doesn't see his wife for 13 years, all because he's running from King Saul. He lost the security of his fortress, his spouse. The next one I want you to see, would you put the next one up, please, is number two, a counselor. Samuel, who anointed him as king. And a counselor is who you listen to with all of your mind. Let's look in verse 18. And when David had fled and made his escape, he went to Samuel at Ramah and told him all that Saul had done to him. And then he and Samuel went to Naoth and stayed there. Here David goes to the only man who he believes knows his destiny, right? Here it's his mentor. It's where he goes to get counsel. Now I want to continue reading in verse 19 to 24. This is a kind of weird passage, but I want, I want you to follow with me. Word came to Saul that David is at Naoth at Ramah, and so he sent men to capture him. But when they saw a group of prophets prophesying with Samuel standing as their leader, the Spirit of God came upon Saul's men, and they also prophesied. Saul was told about it, and so he sent more men, and they prophesied too. And Saul sent men a third time, and they also prophesied. Finally, he himself left for Ramah and went to the great cistern at Seku, and he asked where Samuel uh, where are Samuel and David? Over at Naoth in Ramah, they said. And so Saul went to Naoth at Ramah, but the Spirit of God came even on him, and he walked along prophesying until he came to Naoth. Now this passage is kind of weird. I don't have time to explain it, but the one thing that I want you to catch is that every one of the people that were sent to kill David, the Holy Spirit intervenes and confounds their plan. They start prophesying, right? This shows that when God sends us into a valley, he's going to prove himself as a fortress. Amen? Right? But from here on out, David never sees his beloved mentor again. He lost the security of another fortress, his counselor. The third one I want you to see is his confidant, Jonathan, his best friend. A confidant is who you trust in with all of your soul. In chapter 20 and verse 1, it says, Then David fled, fled from Naoth at Ramah, and he went to Jonathan and asked, what have I done? What is my crime? How have I wronged your father that he's trying to kill me? Now, Pastor Wilson is going to be preaching on this uh, chapter 20 next week. And it's an amazing chapter. 
And so I don't want to steal his thunder and all that truth that comes with it. It's just so amazing. But suffice it to say, for this particular passage, I just want you to look at uh, verse 41 of chapter 20. And David got up from the south side of the stone and bowed down before Jonathan three times with his face to the ground. And they kissed each other and wept together, but David wept the most. Why did David weep? Because after this, David is not reunited in friendship with Jonathan again. He lost yet another fortress, the security of his closest friend. Imagine how painful this experience was to lose all of this. When we find our fortresses in people, you know, um, our focus is not up, but it's side to side, it's horizontal, right? When our fortress is our companion, it's who we care about with all of our heart. That's where our focus is on. When our focus is on our counselor, it's who we listen to with all of our mind. That's who we're focused on. When our focus is on our confidant, it's who we trust with all of our soul. That's what we're focused on. You see, we look to our earthly securities, but then God places us in valleys that are too deep, too dark, and too difficult for those human beings to be that for us. And that is when we realize that all we can do is look up. Amen? I want you to see another one, and that is his career. Verse 4, a career is what you desire with all of your strength. Okay, let me just read it really quick. Chapter 21, 1 and 2. And David went to Nob to Ahimelech the priest, and Ahimelech trembled when he met him and asked, why are you alone? Why is no one with you? And David answered Ahimelech the priest, the king sent me on a mission, and he said to me, no one is to know anything about the mission I'm sending you on, as for my men, I have told them to meet me at a certain place. Here we see the man of faith lying about his career. And it's no secret now that David is a fugitive. It's clear from this chapter that he has nothing. David was once an up-and-coming officer with the brightest future. Now, all of a sudden, he has lost his earthly identity. His career is vanished. It's gone. And let me say this. Why does God separate us from our fortresses? Can we show the picture really quick? Many of you are familiar with, I haven't showed the whole thing, of course, right? But many of you, you know this particular work. It's Michelangelo's most famous sculpture. It's that of David. But you know, it all starts the same way, right? It starts as a block of marble. And the perspective of the sculpture, the sculptor is to free the masterpiece from its prison of marble, right? And so what he does is he has the masterpiece in his mind, and so Michelangelo with hammer and chisel begins to separate the model from the marble. He takes a chisel and he cuts off pieces that obstruct the masterpiece from coming out. He must separate and cut out big pieces and small pieces using different chisels to do exactly what he wants to in his creation. Let me share with you, Michelangelo must separate his model before he finally displays his masterpiece, David. And that's exactly what God does with us. The valleys are his separation process to make us into that masterpiece. God desires to design and develop a person who will be used here on this earth to bring him glory his masterpiece. And in order to fulfill that masterpiece in his mind, he must take us through the chisels and the hammers 
of difficulty and hardships and trials and suffering, those things are used to develop us. And so God separates us from the things that he feels will not make us into the person he wants us to be. And so the separation of supports, there is nothing wrong with the supports that we just talked about. A career or a companion or a counselor or a community, these can all be God-given in our life. But the temptation is when they become our absolute fortress. When our career can be what we desire with all of our strength. When our companion can be what we care about with all of our heart. When our counselor can be what we depend on with all of our mind. When our confidant can be what we trust in with all of our soul. You see, these can be where we seek ultimate security. And we're tempted to substitute that for the living God, for the Lord Jesus Christ. And my friend, that's why he places us in valleys. Jesus says it this way. Get this. Can we go to the next one? Mark chapter 12 and verse 30. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your mind and with all of your strength. Where do I learn how to do that? I learn how to do that in valleys. The purpose of being placed in a valley is so that you will learn to look up, to live out Mark 12, 30. That we learn how to live with God alone as our absolute fortress. So my friend, that's what he desires. He desires to have a relationship with us where he is proving to us who he is. He's our redeemer, our protector, our counselor, our shepherd, our sculptor, our fortress. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes just for a moment? You know, the heart of the gospel is learning to place our absolute trust in him not just for our salvation when we are born into his family, but also for our sanctification as we're growing and maturing in his family. And also in glorification as we hope in the future of being perfected in his family. It means that we're learning to place our absolute trust in him throughout our entire existence from now until eternity. So I want to ask you this morning, are you in a valley are you experiencing something that is just so overwhelming? The Bible says, don't lose heart. Look up. Father, we thank you that you have a plan for it. That you have a purpose for the valley that we're going through. And we ask, Lord, that we would keep our eyes on you. That we would trust in you despite all of the things that are going on around us. We pray that you would be that fortress in our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name and all God's people said.